Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. When I graduated from the eighth grade in 1970, we apparently were asked to pick a class song. I think as a general rule, the boys were completely uninterested in class songs, but the girls were very interested. And what they picked was a popular tune called A Time For Us, which was the theme song for the 1968 Franco Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet. It went like this. I still remember it from eighth grade. A time for us, someday there'll be, when chains are torn of a courage born, of a love that's free. A time when dreams so long denied can flourish as we unveil the love we now must hide. I have no idea what that has to do with graduating from eighth grade, but like poems I learned and other things from eighth grade, there it is, stuck in the old wheelhouse. But you know, in that movie, it had Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whitey, Whiting. Olivia was, I think, 15 years old, and Leonard was 17 at the time the movie was made. In the actual play, uh, Ro uh, Romeo's older, but Julia's like 13 years old. It's child molestation by modern standards, and probably by the standards of the time if you, if you watch Shakespeare's play. So well, why talk about Romeo and Juliet? Because Romeo and Juliet is a very good example of a romantic story that's told and retold under various guises. And what I'm hoping to do in this podcast is to alert you how romantic stories are told. And so what I'm going to do in the introduction to this, before we get to the gospel, to this podcast, is I'm going to talk about Romeo and Juliet as a romantic story told by Franco Zeffirelli. And then I'm going to tell you about Romeo and Juliet the 17th century play from Shakespeare that uh, Franco Zeffirelli ignores some key parts, and we'll talk about why. So let's talk about the romantic version. So the basic story of Romeo and Juliet, as I think dimly remembered by most people, there are two families warring in ancient Verona. One is the Capulets, Julia is a Capulet, Juliet's a Capulet, the other are the Montagues, and Romeo is a Montague. And so the story that uh, Zeffirelli tells uh, really starts just like Shakespeare starts. Montagues enter the marketplace, Capulets enter the marketplace, sword fight begins. And Shakespeare is the Montagues start it because one of them says, I'll bite my tongue, I'll bite my thumb, and they can't abide that. So he bites his thumb. The Capulet takes offense of it. Do you bite your tongue at me, sir? No, sir, my thumb, sir. At me, sir? No, sir, my thumb sword. Draw! And they get at it. Well, uh, it's ended by the prince, because this hatred between the two families sets up the tension between Juliet Capulet and Romeo Montague. And so um, they meet at a ball, and uh, Romeo sees Juliet, doesn't know who her parents are, doesn't know anything about her. Editorial note, ladies and gentlemen, 
If the person that you're in love with doesn't know your parents' name, doesn't know your brother and sister's name, doesn't know any basic information about you, the only data they have is how you look. This is what in the Catholic world uh, we call lust. But in a romantic tale like Franco and Zeffirelli, it's the beginning of beautiful love. So Romeo ends up under Juliet's balcony um, and <laughs> compares her to the sun. My favorite part of that scene is he compares her to a religious shrine as he worships in front of her. This is the language of lust, although it's, it's played as a romantic moment in the Zeffirelli film. And so Juliet says, little 13-year-old Juliet, yeah, well, if I am a shrine, sir, then put your hands together in prayer, sir. To which Romeo replies, because he is never at a loss for a pickup line. Oh, let lips do what hands do. And so they kiss, they fall in love. This leads to a secret marriage because they're so passionately in love. So Friar Lawrence, who's a character in the movie, is the one that presides at their wedding. Uh, the marriage is consummated. Then the plot thickens. Um, old man Capulet comes in and he's arranged an advantageous marriage for Juliet. He doesn't know that she has married his family's enemy, Romeo Montague. Juliet doesn't know what to do. She doesn't want to marry Paris, this other older man. She's already married to, uh, to Romeo. The nurse knows about the secret marriage. She's been the go-between between Romeo and Juliet. But she urges uh, Juliet to go ahead with the bigamous marriage to Paris. So in, even in the Zeffirelli film, Boy, parents aren't a very good influence on this young couple's. Neither is their nurses. And so um, Juliet goes to um, Friar Lawrence and explains what the problem is. Meanwhile, across town, Romeo's in another sword fight. He tries to prevent Thibault, who is a Capulet, from fighting with Mercutio, who's a Montague, but instead... Romeo's friend Mercutio is killed by Thibault because Romeo has poor impulse control. He then pulls his sword and kills Thibault. He was calling Thibault his kinsman because he's married to Juliet, who's, they're both Capulets. So Romeo, who is now a murderer, gets banned from the city of Verona and has to go to Mantua. This is what Friar Lawrence then learns, and here's his plan. He's going to give Juliet a sleeping potion that will make her appear dead, and they'll bury her. Meanwhile, he sends a letter by Friar John uh, to go to Romeo to tell him that this is a ruse, that he should come and collect his secret bride. And then you know how it ends. It comes to Juliet's grave, where she's not really dead. But Romeo doesn't know it, so he's bought some poison. He drinks the poison. He dies. Juliet wakes up. She sees her dead Romeo. Friar Lawrence tells her, run away with me. Let's get out of here. But Juliet, faithful Juliet, will not leave Romeo. So she takes his dagger and stabs herself to death. We'll get to the end of Romeo and Juliet, how it all Shakespeare ends it and how Zeffirelli ends it, because it's very much about this podcast. So the romantic story. What I just told you, with all its twists and turns, you're familiar with this. In the romantic story, 
It's these, quote, star-crossed lovers, as Shakespeare starts out his play, um, that their love is not understood by their parents. And that's that song, that we must unveil the love we now must hide. Um, but isn't there something wrong with the story of love that ends in a graveyard? I mean, is that where love is supposed to end? The basic problem of the romantic story. So let's take a moment and let's go back to the original material, which is Shakespeare's play. You know, do you remember the beginning of Romeo and Juliet in both Shakespeare play and the Zeffirelli movie? There's this big sword fight. What is skipped in Zeffirelli, but what Shakespeare puts in, is this conversation with Romeo and one of his Montague kinsmen. And Romeo is showing contempt for a woman who plays no significant role in the play. Her name is Rosalind. And why does Romeo uh, have contempt for her? Why is he so depressed? He's hanging out in the trees and he's sad and his family doesn't know what to do about it. Because Rosalind has taken a vow of chastity and Romeo is not chaste at all in the play, not even in the movie, but chastity is something that's a casualty in the Zeffirelli film. But Rosalind's very serious about keeping herself for marriage, and this is what uh, uh, Romeo doesn't like and disrespects about Rosalind. And so he calls love a madness um, because it is about impulse control. And so in the Shakespeare play, Romeo goes from obsessing about Rosalind to obsessing about Juliet, who is a little more accessible, apparently, a little more morally flexible than poor Rosalind ever was. And so this idea of Romeo as being a lover, well, maybe in kind of the modern American sense of what love is, but not in the Christian sense, which dominated uh, Shakespeare's time. You know, uh, Juliet's fall comes on a balcony when she kisses Romeo. Romeo's there among the trees, and he's calling up to Juliet. Hark, what dawn breaks, what yonder dawn breaks, is the line from Romeo and Juliet. You know, does that ring any bells with you, this fall under the trees? Doesn't it sound a lot like Genesis chapter 3? And so love and virtue, chastity, unchastity, all how you value these things is the difference between a romantic telling of this tale and the Catholic telling of this tale. So let's take a moment. Let's turn to the gospel and especially Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, about marriage. And let's look a little deeper into the issues that are involved in Romeo and Juliet. In the gospel, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That would have been last week's gospel, but we had the assumption. So in the gospel today, it's the ending part of John chapter 6. But it's very much about Christ in us and us in Christ. Um, that line 
about unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, what the gospel is about today is how some of his disciples are offended, but and they leave and they won't walk with him anymore. Jesus says to St. Peter and the fellows that are still standing there, are you going to leave me too? And here's what the scriptures say. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These are hard sayings, and this is why his disciples walk away. But think about it. In John 6, it's about God being in your flesh and you in God through Eucharist. Where else does that idea show up? You know where else it shows up? Matthew 19, but in a very different context. Let me read this to you before we get to our discussion of Ephesians. But this is Jesus on marriage and divorce. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatever? He said in reply, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Does this sound familiar when you think about John 6? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. And they said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, and marries another, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If that is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. He answered, Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. So do you seek some connections between Matthew 19 and John 6? In both cases, it's about becoming one flesh. In both cases, the disciples find it hard. In John 6, they walk away. From others say, Well, it's better not to marry. He says, some can't accept this word. And so this sense of the connection between the human person and God and the human person and one another and how marriage and Eucharist track each other. Jesus in communion, one flesh. Man and woman, one flesh. Disciples in both cases have struggles, whether it's the Eucharist or it's marriage. So let's go into that a little further. So Ephesians chapter 5. And this is how it starts out. Brothers and sisters, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word subordinate is the Greek word hupotosomai, and it means to be ordered under. So this is why, when actually I mistakenly read this scripture at my sister's wedding, who had not picked it, and she and her husband gave herself, and they've been married a long time, gave themselves ironic looks because Mary says, I'll never be subordinate to anybody. But what I would say is it's like if you will take Ephesians 5 and imagine that Franco Zeffirelli takes a 17th century play out of a Christian culture and reads it in modern secular terms as a romantic play that's just about emotion, but not about any other frankly, more important values. 
that are inherent in the Christian story of marriage. So to be subordinate, hypotosome, is to be subordered. It's to order yourself to another. For instance, in the spiritual life, we order ourselves um, to God. In the married life, according to St. Paul, uh, husband and wife are supposed to suborder themselves to each other. Where St. Paul gets in trouble with the modern reading is he talks about the wife being subordinate to her husband. It's about three lines there. Then the rest of it, and this is maybe because men needed to hear this story, is husbands are supposed to love their wife like Christ loves the church. And so you love her, St. Paul says, as your own body. And if you point that out, if you've got a pain in your body, your body's telling you something. If there is something that your wife is upset about, um, your wife is telling you something. This subordinate um, move between husband and wife is how it is you learn to listen to each other and order your lives according to each other. The romantic view, uh, or I would say because it's a misreading, and you'll see this in our, in our Christian uh, history, um, is where husbands uh, bully their wives. The, the strong uh, bully the, the weaker uh, and because it's either culture or physically weaker or whatever the power structures are. Um, and then, which is the worst, use religion to justify it. And then it becomes this very tendentious, that is, a result-oriented reading of Ephesians 5. And this has done a lot of damage. Um, and it's if you look at the modern feminist movement, at least second-wave feminism that starts with Simone de Beauvoir, it's about how marriage is used to keep women down. And it still is this uh, echo that works in our culture. That is not what St. Paul was talking about. Because... To understand Ephesians 5, this understanding of ordering each other, which I think you probably get where I'm going with all of this, you have to remember that Paul lived in the first century. He understands Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is Genesis 1, where man and woman together are made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 2, which is the second creation story where woman is taken from the side of man, not his foot, not his head, but from his side, because again, this idea of radical equality. And then Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall. And why is there a fall? Well, because Adam leaves Eve to face the serpent alone. And then this disordered love radiates out to Adam, who participates in the fall that has already happened. And what is at the heart of it? The heart of it is Adam and Eve disconnect from the true source of order. This is the love of God and the love of each other. It's not present under that tree in the garden. And it's Satan, the serpent, that preys upon this wedge that already exists somehow. Uh, between Adam and Eve. And so the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is about the radical equality of male and female in God's eyes. They are, in St. John Paul's understanding, complementary of each other. Men and women are not identical. They'll never be the, the exact same. 
but that somehow together they compose this entirety of what we call humanity. They uh, aren't opposites, they are complements to each other. And in some sense, they make each other complete. And this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, where he says, uh, there is one flesh. So what's at the heart of the fall? At the heart of the fall is when this love between Adam and Eve is separated from virtue. It's the same problem that Shakespeare talks about in his play, Romeo and Juliet, and it is the dimension of love that Zeffirelli misses when he does his romantic version in 1968. Love, to be rightly ordered, to be subordered, has to be ordered towards virtue. And the virtues are very obvious. Uh, at least we should all know the virtues. There are the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which orders a man's uh, and a woman's marriage and their life together because we become one flesh, or man and woman become one flesh in marriage because they trust in God, they hope in God, and they learn to love each other, as Ephesians says, like Christ loved the church, out of respect and reverence for each other. The acquired virtues, theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, are gifts of grace. But the acquired virtues, anybody, Christian, non-Christian, can acquire virtue and learn it because we learn it by the example of others, for one thing. That's why the story of the Capulets and the Montagues, why Romeo and Julia are so screwed up, because their parents are screwed up, their nurses are screwed up, <laughs> Friar Lawrence is screwed up. They, they try to pursue this ideal of love in a fallen world, and then their love itself falls. But what was missing in the streets of Verona in this unirrational hatred between the Capulets and the Montagues is the acquired virtues. So there was no sense of justice. That is what we owe to one another and the boundaries on my behavior towards another. So when you have sword fights in the middle of Verona, something's come off the tracks uh, when it's over whether or not I bite my thumb, sir, your thumb, sir, my thumb, sir. What the heck? Why are you dropping the glove and challenging each other over something like that? unjust. But the other acquired virtues, the cardinal virtues they're called, would be prudence, which is just good judgment. Um, good judgment means knowing what to do in challenging situations. But good judgment comes because you learn to live a life of temperance and moderation. You learn how to impulse control. You don't eat everything, put everything in your mouth that you want to eat. You don't, this is a hard one for me, express every thought that floods through your, through your mind. Um, you don't uh, follow up on every impulse of every pretty girl that you meet in a ball, in a ball. You don't criticize chastity. That is an ideal of what love should be. So Romeo's uh, lack of prudence and temperance and his criticism of Rosalind and his um, lust for Juliet is very present in Shakespeare's play. And then the fourth cardinal virtue, an acquired virtue, is the virtue of, uh, virtue of fortitude or courage. Well, when, when Romeo gets upset because Thibault, a Capulets, killed Mercutio, a Montague, then it's out of 
anger that Romeo kills Tebow and brings immensely more agony into his life. Um, in Romeo and Juliet, there's romantic love and there's the hate of the families. And neither love nor hate, this anger, this wrath, is tempered at all by the theological or the moral virtues. That pretty much goes by everybody uh, in the Z Franco Zeffirelli movie, but it's at the heart of what Romeo and Juliet is about. So let's bring this all together um, in the conclusion of this podcast about how Romeo and Juliet ends and what we have to learn about what it means to be one flesh with God and with one another in marriage. So Romeo and Juliet, what's that play about? Is it a romantic story about these two crazy teens that fall in love with each other and their families just don't understand them, which is the quintessential 1968 story? Or is it some more about um, love and hate, which is out of order with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and the acquired virtues of justice, temperance, prudence, and courage. That there are all of these attempts at love floating around in Shakespeare's play, but at the heart of it is this failure of love because it's disconnected from virtue. You know the key, key scene in my view in the Shakespeare's play, which is under that balcony where Romeo and Juliet's fatal course is decided when uh, lips do what hands would do in prayer, that is, they meet, they smooch. Um, Romeo's standing out under the trees, and Juliet is there above him. They're separated, but Romeo's already in a bad spiritual space because it's like the Garden of Eden, where that fall in Genesis chapter 3 comes under the trees. So virtue is lacking in Romeo and Juliet. Um, and it really shows in the end of the play. And so I'd like to read you the end of uh, Romeo and Juliet and then show you where the Zeffirelli film stops and then Shakespeare continues. So this is if you get a copy of Romeo and Juliet, here's how it ends. So there's poor Juliet, Romeo's dagger stuck in her abdomen, her lips already glowing, growing cold. Poor Romeo, having poisoned himself to death, lays next to her. So the families arrive. Oh, good gravy, what's happened? That's not actually a Shakespeare line. But then the prince, and the prince is the source of authority in Verona. He's criticized the Capulets and the Montagues for their hatred in the past. He's promised to punish them, but he never does anything. It's like Friar Lawrence, he should know better. In the closing scenes, he confesses that he screwed this up. He did not do what a parish priest ought to do. And the prince says, you are a holy man because he understands his failure in Shakespeare. In Shakespeare, the virtuous don't always do what the virtuous ought to do, but the Christian always recognizes when their behavior departs from virtue. So the prince basically forgives Father, Father Lawrence. He gets off free. Uh, but then he addresses the Capulets and the Montagues are standing around the bodies of their dead teenagers. And here's what the prince says. 
This letter doth make good the friar's words. I'm putting on an English accent. Their course of love, the tidings of her death. And here he writes that he did buy a poison of a poor apothecary and therewithal came to this vault to die and lie with Juliet. Where be these enemies, Capulet and Montague? See what a scourge is laid upon your hate, that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love, and I, for winking at you, discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished, all are punished. That's how the movie ends, that everybody, it just is, ends up in the grave here. Uh, it's all just bad. Here's what Shakespeare's ending was. After what I just read you, which is how Romeo and Juliet basically ends in the movie, here's how the play ends. After listening to the prince, Juliet's dad, old man Capulet, says to old man Montague, O brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's jointure. For no more can I demand. And so the two warring dads hold hands. Old man Montague looks back at old man Capulet and he says, But I can give thee more, for I will raise her statue in pure gold. This is Romeo's dad. That whilst Verona by that name is known, there shall be no figure at such rate beset as that of true and faithful Juliet. Then old man Capulet says, As rich shall Romeo's by his ladies lie, poor sacrifices of our enmity. And so what happens is brought to their senses the leaders of these warring factions, forgive, make a connection through the death of these two young people. And then the prince brings it all together. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Shakespeare plays ends in a much more hopeful tone than the Zeffirelli film. So what could you take out of all of this? The romantic ideas that just collapse love into attraction, this just ends in the graveyard. And that's a very Christian insight. And so when Jesus, when he talks about the bread of life, or he talks about marriage as the two being of one flesh, well, there is a trajectory to that love, that connection that goes past the graveyard. Because he says... My body is the bread of eternal life. And so virtues, theological and acquired, because of faith, hope, and love, the acquired virtues are directed towards salvation. They end in hope. That is really the moral framework of the play of Romeo and Juliet. But in the last two centuries, when we've, in, when we've uh, encountered and entertained these merely romantic tales which dominate our media. What important lessons about love are being lost that are present both in Jesus's teaching on the Eucharist, but also in his teachings on marriage, where we become one flesh with God and through marriage, one flesh. And 
part of God's church. So, hope you enjoyed this about Romeo and Juliet. If you did, please go ahead and, you know, give me a like, uh, share me with your friends, uh, and uh, God bless you. And when you, whether you love or you're in anger, uh, do it in accord with reason and virtue. God bless you until next time.